Hi ho everybody, this is Rudy Valou, alias Rudy Valley. We are poor little lambs who have lost our way. And this is Frank Brzee with Rudy Valley on the golden days of radio. Last week, Rudy Valley was our guest, and he insisted that we, we change the theme to something more appropriate. And we changed it to one of your, well, I guess, one of the, your most famous uh, hits. It certainly has become a classic, regardless of uh, whether it's associated with me particularly. It's become an evergreen that will probably endure for many, many years because of its poignancy of lyric and its beautiful melody. Last week, we talked about uh, some of the people you introduced on, uh, on your radio show, The Fleischman's Hour. At one time, Diana, John, and Lionel Barrymore, probably the most famous uh, family in, uh, in the theater, appeared on the radio together. And it was quite a smash. It was a, it well, of course, to get the royal family together like that, the three of them, was a, a real coup. Uh, and John Reber used to do this little thing we broadcast Thursday nights from 8 to 9 in New York City. Friday morning, uh, he would walk into the J. Waller Thompson offices, which are on Lexington Avenue near the Gray Bar Building over Grand Central Station. And if he dropped a little, I think it was an orchid, if he dropped an orchid on the desk of Gordon Thompson and George Faulkner, they knew they'd had a good show the night before. Well, I'm sure they dropped a lot of orchids this Friday morning. Here's Diana, John, and Lionel Barrymore with Rudy Valley. There's a royal treat in store for us tonight with three members of the theater's royal family in our midst. Diana, John, and Lionel Barrymore. Diana, it's, it's nice to have you with us again. Oh, it's nice to see you too, Rudy. Are you on Father's program every week? Yes, you see, I... Father's program? Yes. I think it's nice for Father to give a newcomer like you a chance. Newcomer? Diana, I've been in radio since I got my first pair of long pants. This is the same Rudy Valley. And those are the same pants. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll overlook that. Oh, we were only teasing, Rudy. I know you gave Father a start in radio. Actually, John Barrymore owes you a lot. Why should I be an exception? <laughs> right, Lionel? Right, Rudy. You know, Uncle Lionel, Daddy has never told me which one of you is really the younger. The younger? <laughs> <laughs> my dear Jay. <laughs> <laughs> Lionel was a young man when I got me first tooth. <laughs> yes, and I was still a young man when you got rid of your last one. Why, <laughs> <laughs> you... Please, Daddy, Uncle Lionel. Uh, what business are you in, Uncle Lionel? What do you do? What do I do? What... Uh, I do the same things your father does. Why, Lionel. <laughs> Diana, surely you've seen your Uncle Lionel in pictures. Don't you go to movies? Oh, I only see a movie when father is the star. Oh, then you don't know about talkies. <laughs> well, anyhow, I'm proud of my father. And I'd like to know how I can best follow in his footsteps. Well, do what the sheriff does. Get a bloodhound. <laughs> now, look here, Brother Scrooge. At ease, at ease, gentlemen. No fighting. I've invited you all here to act in a play that I've written. Oh, say, I think it would be fun for all of us to act in a play together, especially the one that Rudy wrote. I bet it's wonderful. Oh, it's nothing that Shakespeare couldn't do as well. 
if he were alive. He could probably do as well the way he is. No doubt, Rudy, you've cast a great profile in the leading role. Well, I... I, I if you have, you can count me out of your well, claim. Really, I, of course, I, if the woman's role isn't the most important, I wouldn't consider it. Well, I... Heaven help a valley on a night like this. <laughs> ah, the three Barrymores on Broadway. I can see our name in lights outside the theater. John Barrymore and company. <laughs> and company? Me play a supporting role? Now, Lionel, you know I'm a star of this family. You've always supported me on the stage. <laughs> on the stage, he says. <laughs> After all, what difference does it make whose name comes first? Let's feature both Barrymore brothers and star Diana Barrymore. <laughs> the girl's a chip off the old block. <laughs> you mean a slice off the old ham. You did the right thing by having them on the show. During the Second World War, you performed uh, quite a lot on uh, many of the Armed Forces radio service programs. Uh, that is true. Uh, there was one program in particular that I'm thinking of. It's Mail Call, and this was done in 1943, uh, a program on which you appeared with Fred Allen uh, and Frank Sinatra. Yes, Fred Allen. <laughs> that's Fred Allen. That's who that is. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> that sounds just like him. And this is a funny, funny bit. Here it is. There's one guy I know, Rudy. He's 195 pounds of solid bone and muscle. A massive mastodonic specimen of manhood. Was somebody calling me? Yes. Come in, Frank Sinatra. <laughs> well, Frank, it's nice to see you. Nice to see you, Fred. <coughs> uh, what are you doing out here in California, Fred? It's a long, dull story, Frank. I wanted to go to Maine, so I went over to the Grand Central Station in New York, bought a ticket, and four days later, here I was in Hollywood. Hollywood? How come? Well, look, Frank, today, if you can get a ticket on a train, you don't ask any questions. <laughs> you go where the engineer is going. You know, the train situation is pretty confused, Frank. I have a friend who at this moment has been in Quebec for three weeks visiting his mother, who incidentally is in Denver. Anyway, I'm glad you came out, Fred. You see, I've been wanting to talk to you alone for some time. <coughs> What's the matter, bud? You got a cold? <laughs> oh, excuse me, Frank. I knew I'd forgotten something. This is Rudy Valley. Rudy who? Valley. Valet, as in Death Valley Days. <laughs> Rudy, this is Frank Sinatra. Frank who? Sinatra. He's a singer. Oh. Oh, yes. The voice. <laughs> <laughs> Look who's laughing. The vagabond lover. My time is your time. To think that that split up my grandmother and grandfather, I don't believe it. Nothing at all. Son, you're nothing at all if I ever saw it. Now, gentlemen, gentlemen, please. This expose is liable to put you both out of business. Why, this guy, Valley, used to sing through a megaphone. You would, too, if you could lift one. Boy. <laughs> Boys, please watch your language. There are sailors present. And it's time for a song. And if one of you guys don't sing, I'm going to. Oh, no, not that. Yes, I'd rather listen to Valley than you. And I'd rather listen to Sinatra. Go ahead, Junior. Thrill the people. 
Boost him up to the mic, Fred. Up. That was 1943, the mail call program. You you have been appearing in nightclubs all over the country for years and years and years. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> but you also did something else that was spectacular. You uh, you appeared in a Broadway play, which uh, became one of the biggest hits on Broadway. What did they gross? Fifty million dollars. Probably on... the only musical with a story that didn't receive one unfavorable review, not one. The show we're talking about is how to succeed in business without really trying. Uh, in 1962, this is a short interview where you do one of your famous jo- I love this joke that you do, and then you talk a little bit about how to succeed in business uh, without really trying. Here's Rudy in 1962. I have developed since 1949 to the time I learned how to succeed a lot of material that... Uh, I would best term as uh, humor based on sex, anatomy, religion, politics, drinking, hair, and uh, religion. I gave one of my LPs to Hansacker the other day to win an Associated Press interview, and I said to him today, did you play it? He said, six times, in fact, he invited the neighbors in. And uh, I told him a story as he and Hansacker sat around the swimming pool the other afternoon that he said is thought one of the funniest of all, and this is a sample of a political story that I've been telling for since 19... Oh, I first heard it in Miami in about 1951, of how uh, it concerns Dewey in the 1948 campaign. As you know, everyone predicted that uh, Dewey would win and that uh, our friend uh, Truman would be completely defeated, completely defeated. And about five nights before the, elect- uh, the election itself, Mr. Dewey and Mr. Dewey were living at the 12th floor of the Roosevelt Hotel in New York, sort of campaign headquarters. and. Yeah, Mr. Dewey gave Mr. Dewey $1,000 and said, My dear, go out and buy yourself some very lovely lingerie, some lovely silk kind of things, some very exciting things, because, my dear, five nights from tonight, you're going to sleep with the President of the United States. Came the morning after the election, about 6 o'clock. Mr. Dewey very sadly took the elevator up to the 12th floor, and at the end of the suite, Mrs. Dewey was seated in front of the mirror, arrayed in all this lovely finery, primping and fixing up. She said, What goes, Tom? Does Harry come over here, or do I go over there? Very funny story. Rudy, Rudy, there's uh, quite a bit of biting satire in this show. During the run on Broadway, did you find that the businessmen who came to see it were annoyed or insulted by the fun being poked at them? No, even even those men that we did more or less show up on in the in the play. Uh, didn't in any way become offended. I'm sure they, they sat and roared and laughed at their being unmasked. I think they enjoyed it more than we did. That was a successful show, as we said. You know, there's one thing missing on television today, and I think that's a, a Rudy Valley variety hour. Now that uh, Ed Sullivan is no longer with us on Sunday night, uh, I think there is, uh, there is room for that type of a show. Uh, the Fleischman Hour or the Seal Test Show or a good variety show, which we certainly do not have on television. Have you thought about television at all? Back in 51, John Reber and J. Walter Thompson offered me the craft show. At that time, they, they thought they were very magnanimous and very benevolent and generous when they offered me $5,000 to head a variety show on, on radio, one-hour show. And if there was anything left out of the $15,000 that they had for the budget for the entertainment and uh, costume sets and everything, I would get what was left, which you know there would be nothing left anyway. 5000 bucks, and I turned it down. Subsequently, in 57, when I was playing, uh, doing a play called Jenny Kissed Me, which I play an old Catholic priest, I was playing it in Southampton, Long Island, New York. 
I played already in a great many cities throughout the country, and I was there for a week, and Steve Allen had abdicated the Tonight Show on NBC, and they were looking for a substitute. They tried out, uh, oh, they tried out quite a few persons. Uh, who's the guy that I'm thinking of that's doing the, the, uh, the odd couple now, Tony Randall? He was one of the, that did it most well, uh, did it best of all. And uh, several persons came down with Paul Keyes and uh, uh, boyman Roger Gimble came down to see me at Southampton. We sat on the beach, the four or five boys, the writers and his producer, and Paul Keyes was an old friend of mine from Maine. And I said, gentlemen, I want a show that has goose in it. I want a show that is hurtful, H-U-R-T-F-U-L, hurtful, with bite, sting, that the, list, the viewer will say, my God, are they really saying that? Does he really dare to pit Jaja against Jessel? Does he really dare to do this expose, this, uh, use that language and do this type of thing? I said, I want a show that'll shake the hell out of the viewer. You're a troublemaker, that's what No, 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 I wanted a show that later on became that type of show in the hands of someone else. And I said, that's the type of thing I want to do. They wouldn't go with it at all. They gave me the worst two shows that I ever have done in my life. One of the acts was a fellow who lost himself, his magician, who disappeared on a great big can of water, and we didn't see him for 12 <laughs> minutes. It was one of the worst, two of the worst shows I've ever done in my life. With the result, of course, they didn't even consider me. And later on came along a fellow named Jack Parr, who did exactly what I'm talking about. Because Parr, was great because of one thing. You never knew what to expect from him. There was none of this light and airy sweetness and sweetness and shining light and all that. He really spoke his mind, told NBC, Winchell and Sullivan where they headed in when he felt like doing it. And if he wanted to do, for instance, if they chose a girl singer that he didn't like, he would look to the sky and say, oh my God, where did they find this girl while she's singing? Right in view of the viewer, which is the way it should be done. And, and it was a marvelous show because he had guts. There isn't anyone today who has the guts that Jack Parr had. I think Jack Parr stands alone. As a matter of fact, he used to come on the show once in a while and say, you people who are tired, go to bed because you're going to read about the show tomorrow morning in the paper anyway. Precisely. And he kept everyone. He had guts, and that's the type of thing I wanted to do. And frankly, I wouldn't be too interested in doing a variety show today. Of course, the handling of a talk show is quite different from a variety show. I, I grant you that. I'm not witty. I'm not clever, I'm not quick in the repartee as Joey Bishop and all the rest are but I think I could do a very probing type of show, closer to Cavett than uh, is now being done on the on the talk shows and I think I'd like, to, I'd like to have had a chance at least to try it once if I could have picked my guests and handled it the way I wanted to handle it, but they never asked me and I'm rather, rather unhappy about it there's, there's no doubt about the fact it would be controversial well, there would be bite to it. It wouldn't be all light and sweetness. Well, as you said, that's the way it should be because that's what people who tune in television uh, should be watching. In April 1969, at the Marquee Restaurant in Hollywood here, uh, the Hollywood Press Club uh, presented an evening with uh, some of the stars of radio, and you were one of the stars that were there that evening. I had my portable tape recorder, and I recorded these words from Rudy Valley. I, too, am very deeply grateful to radio because it, I'm really a product and a creature of radio and I'm occasionally, somebody asks me for an autograph and they say, I'm a movie fan. I say, no, I'm purely radio. I'm, I'm a little amused a little while ago when we were, Mr. Dallin and I were at the bar and this, I heard this young couple talking to each other and the young lady said, the young man, she said, uh, oh, the young man said, the young lady said, I'm very excited that Rudy Valley is here tonight. 
She said, well, I get excited about that. I said, I want to see what the old goat looked like. <laughs> <laughs> that was not the exact expression he used, however. <laughs> what he did was just something to do with my ancestry somewhere. <laughs> the young man is here. This is the picture of Dorian Valley. For the benefit of some of you boys whose hair may be thinning out a little bit, and just in case you've been wondering about that facet of my personal appearance, let me say very modestly, very simply, that this is my own hair. I'll admit I've lightened it on occasions for television motion pictures using Hudnut's light and bright. <laughs> Actually, during the four years that I was in New York, I used Clara Loving Care and was 77. Light mahogany. Damn chlorine in the water takes all the mahogany out. <laughs> of course, when I wear a dark suit, I use head and shoulders. <laughs> it amuses me sometimes I'm seated at the table and I play nightclubs between shoulders to find that individuals around me making wages and bets as to how old I might be. I sort of remember the flights on our George White scandals, maybe a hotel nightclub engagement, maybe a motion picture. Sometimes it's a song that brought them together romantically. And I could pretend that Jack Benny doesn't say that I'm 22 or 23, but I'm not going to insult your intelligence. I'll simply say that we have an unhappy day for me when I say goodbye to 35. <laughs> I see. <laughs> there are skeptics present. No, I'll admit that I've reached the great divide. In fact, I've passed over and into that boundary and that land from which there is no return the age of 50. Would you like me to try for 64? <laughs> 50, which some philosopher once described as a division, a division on life's highway, which makes you wonder why they don't repair that roadbed. <laughs> it's where the narrow gauge begins. There's a feeling that comes up when you reach 50, the same feeling the racehorse has when he first sees the ice wagon. <laughs> the only way you can really look at 50 is the sort of state or condition that keeps you out of a lot of trouble you'd sure like to get into. <laughs> And as the doctor looks over the animate domains, he cautions you that there are things you can't do at 50 that you used to do at 20, silly guy. If you only realize the things you can't do at 50, you wouldn't have done at 20 for $3 an hour. <laughs> the rest of the things you didn't have money enough to do at 20 anyway. Then there's a difference in the attitude of these lovely young things, these lovely young girls who should still be your natural playmates. They suddenly begin treating you with great respect and addressing you as Mr. In the same tone they do to addressing Lionel Barrymore. Or Winston Churchill. Or Edgar Bergen. <laughs> they regard you as the trees, the hills, the flowers, and the Gettysburg battlefield, which, believe me, is disinterest in its purest form. I'm sure that some of you boys can remember how at 20, we'd drive 40, 50 miles an hour on our Stutz Bearcats. Our standing steam was our model people livers and Pierce hours for at least two or three hundred miles through a blinding snowstorm to see one particular girl. When you get to be 50, you phone any girl who's home, tell her to grab a cab and bring her own bottle. <laughs> and at 20, you'd sit in the stadium with the coat collars done up through a hailstorm to watch the North Carolina Tar Heels play the Oklahoma Aggies for the championship of the soybean belt of the prize wooden turtle. At 50, you might whip up enough enthusiasm and say, I'd like to see that game on the newsreels and television. But you wouldn't venture out into that traffic to see them play for the possession of North Carolina. <laughs> and if when you stand in line for hours to take a ride on that first atomic-powered rocket ship at 50, you wouldn't stand in line to take a ride on a magic carpet through Shangri-La on a pass. In fact, the only thing you stand in line for is a place to sit down. <laughs> and at 20, when a girl smiled at you and gave you that knowing look, you'd wander onto the next weighing machine mirror to see why you were so handsome. 
At 50, you look to see who's behind you or what's unbuttoned. That was April 1969, and that was our guest, Rudy Valley. Rudy, I want to thank you for joining me on the Golden Days of Radio these past two weeks. It's uh, been my pleasure, and we've talked about a lot of different things. But uh, I, I've got a problem now. You made me promise I wouldn't use Manhattan Merry-Go-Round as a theme. What am I going to do? I'm going to break Pinky Herman's heart, the man who wrote the <laughs> lyric of Manhattan Merry-Go-Round. He's one of my dearest friends. But I'm going to sing a song that, uh, when, when I do it on the air, if I do eight measures, brings me in a few pennies. I first picked it out in 19... Oh, 30, 1932, I think it was. I was playing the Pennsylvania Grill, 1931. I was playing the Pennsylvania Grill. And Jack Robbins, one of the great minds of the music business, one of the great old-time music publishers, one of the greatest, came in with Jimmy McHugh, who wrote The Sunny Side of the Street, I Can't Give Anything But Love Baby, and a lot of other songs. Uh, came in about 12, 30, quarter to one. At one o'clock, we finished the evening, and I went to Rubens with him, had a bite to eat, went to our, my apartment on West End Avenue, I mean, the... Uh, Central Park West, with a, sh a big stack of English records that Jack had brought over from England. They were plum-colored labeled instead of the black and gold of our Victor. They were plum-colored, and they call them HMV, his master's voice. And we began playing these records with the idea of my choosing a song to use as my theme from the Pennsylvania roof during the summer, which was forthcoming. They played quite about oh, eight or ten tunes, and finally I said to Jack, I like that one, and rather surprised. He said, that one you like? And I said, yes, very much indeed. I said, who is this fellow? Ray Noble. He said he's the, what we call a houseman for RCA, for HMV in England. That is a man who sets up the microphones and tells the musicians or different bands where to sit and has his own house orchestra that records songs using his name or some uh, fictitious name. And uh, that is what he was doing over there. And he happened to write this song and with two other songwriters. And they, and they said, Jack said, you like that song? I said, yes. And I said, I want a penny, a copy, and my mechanical royalist. And I'll make a change in the lyric, dot a couple I's and uh, cross a couple of T's and change a few of the notes. And we'll put on the cover that it's the Prince of Wales' favorite song, and this is Rudy Valley's American version. I did it on a Thursday evening, about 2.30 later. This is very unusual. Between that Thursday evening that I did it and Saturday noon, it sold 10,000 sheet music copies, which was fantastic. Even in the best days of sheet music, very rarely they sell that many. And the song has earned me roughly oh, probably fifteen or twenty thousand dollars, maybe twenty-five thousand dollars over the last uh, year since I did it in 1931. So this is, good night sweetheart, till we meet tomorrow. Good night sweetheart, sleep away your sorrow. Dreams and parting may make us fall on, and goodbye. That's it. Thank you, Rudy Valley. brings to a close this edition of the Golden Days of Radio and our salute to Rudy Valley. This is Frank Brzee in Hollywood, California, inviting you to join me next week for more from Radio's Golden Days. This is the American Forces Radio and Television Service.